What do I think about evangelicals converting to Catholicism? My thoughts on Pope Francis's new view of hell and what makes the Bible uniquely inspired and much more. I'm Preston Sprinkle and this is Theology in the Raw. Thanks, friends, for tuning in to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I've got a bunch of questions that were submitted through my patrons at my uh, Patreon account, and I chose five of those questions. Uh, My Patreon supporters get to vote on which questions they want me to answer, and they have cast their lots. And so I am uh, submitting to their desires and answer the questions that they want me to answer. So thank you so much from my Patreon supporters for not only supporting the show, but also for uh, handcuffing me with some really, really great questions. Let's dive in to the first one here. What do I think about evangelicals converting to Catholicism? The questioner says, my question is this, how do you feel about somebody who is converting uh, converting from a Bible teaching church, like a non-denominational church or an exegetical Bible teaching church, to the Catholic Church. What kind of response should we have to that friend? Do we exhort, rebuke, warn, or just say, God bless you, I hope it's great? Okay, so I used to not get this. I used to not understand why anybody in their right mind could ever convert from being a Bible-believing evangelical Christian and converting to the Catholic Church. I used to just, it didn't make any sense to me. It made a lot of sense to convert from Catholicism to Protestantism or convert from, you know, the Catholic Church to entering into a, a true, you know, Bible-believing church. Now, you you may be able to sense in my tone that I do not hold to that position anymore. Now, as I'll say in a second, I am... Um, I, I am Protestant for several reasons. Like I do think that the Protestant brand of Christianity is a more accurate representation of New Testament Christianity. I'll, I'll give a few reasons why I believe that, but I don't, I, I get it. I actually understand and in some ways resonate with why people are leaving in, in particular non-denominational churches to the Catholic church, or, I mean, I think there's a big trend more recently, you know, people leaving the evangelical church for Orthodox, uh, some brand of the Orthodox church. And I, I understand it now. I do. I I don't necessarily, well, is this an agree or disagree thing? I mean, it's, it's not something I am going to choose, at least not for the foreseeable future, but I can understand why some people are just tired of the evangelical church and yet aren't ready to ditch Christianity and so they um, they join either the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. I mean, there is a sense of rootedness in the Catholic Church, uh, a sense of seriousness, authority, sacredness. I love the awareness of sacredness in the Catholic and Orthodox uh, churches. Plus, you know, if, to be honest, I mean, there's a good deal of fluff and goofiness and even anti-intellectualism in some Protestant churches. Okay, so I, I, you know, I can see where somebody, especially if they're a deep thinker, if they have a huge respect for things that are sacred, if they're tired of, for instance, the playfulness or the, if I can even say the goofiness of some, not all obviously, but some brands of evangelical Christianity. Again, I don't think 
my decision would be to leave evangelicalism for the Catholic Church, but I can I can see where people would do that. It's no longer shocking to me that that um, that people would leave non-denominational Protestant churches for the Catholic Church. I also think you know there's a lot of stereotypes that exist both on the side of Catholics and Protestants. So Catholics have their stereotypes of Protestants, and Protestants have their stereotypes of Catholics. You know, I. I um, I don't make a habit of this, but I sometimes listen to, you know, Richard Rohr, who's, who's a Catholic, a great thinker, um, just a vibrant Christian and very, you know, very prophetic and challenging in, in many ways. But man, when he describes like the Protestant church or the Catholic church or the Reformed church, I mean, I don't even know who he's talking about. Like, you know, I heard him once say that, you know, as if he's trying to school, you know, Reformed Christians saying, you know, the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 3, it begins in Genesis 1 and 2 you know, assuming that reformed people don't have any sort of doctrine of creation, which is just utterly insane. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Like, have you ever read a reformed person besides, you know, some far right, you know, modern day reformed writer with a blog or something? I mean, that's just not to, to say that reformed people don't have a good theology of creation. I mean, may, may, maybe true of certain individuals, but goodness gracious. I mean, especially certain brands of, you know, um, of the Dutch reform movement. I mean, they're the ones that have been bringing us back to Genesis one and two as the foundation of a biblical worldview. Anyway, that there's sort of stereotypes in the side of Catholics that, you know, they may take a really um, skewed off the wall, uninformed brand of Protestantism and think that that represents all Protestants, vice versa. Protestants have a habit of doing this too, especially non-denominational kind of low church Protestants may think that all Catholics, you know, don't read the Bible. Uh, they just, you know, and they, they don't like take their faith seriously and they're just in the tradition and, and, you know, they just, whatever the Pope says, they just believe and they would sit around bowing down to Mary all day long, you know, or whatever the stereotype may be. But man, I, I, um, I've met a lot of Catholics who, who have an incredible knowledge of scripture and a deep reverence and submission to the Bible. They may have a different view and may, maybe even a slightly different view in terms of authority and ultimate authority and the role of tradition and the church. But goodness, I've been in several Protestant subcultures that would view their favorite, I won't name any names, view their favorite preacher, teacher, pastor, authority as as having like near Pope-like status. They would never say that, but functionally they very much operate that way. If somebody of a, you know, a high status in evangelical Christianity, that's sort of your favorite pastor or preacher. If they say something, you're probably going to go along with it. And if they change their view on something, you're more than likely going to go with that. I think there is um, brands of popish type authority in several subcultures of evangelicalism. So I think sometimes we get we're, we're a little too hard on we Protestants can be a little too hard on Catholics thinking thinking that they just have no I no like authority no view of the authority of Scripture and they just simply take whatever the Pope says and, at face value and just believe it. Um, I, I, yes, that may be true of certain Catholics. I also know it to be true of certain Protestants. So. Why am I a Protestant? Let me give you three main reasons. Number one, sola scriptura, not that scripture is the only authority, but that scripture is the ultimate authority, that scripture ultimately uh, trumps tradition. Yes, it is informed by tradition. It is shaped by tradition. In some ways, scripture is a product of tradition, partly, 
Um, but I still, at the end of the day, if I am utterly convinced of studying the scripture on a certain doctrine, then I'm willing to go against what you know my Reformed or Protestant tradition tells me uh, is their understanding of, of scripture. And, and if you've followed this uh, podcast for any number of minutes, you know that I'm more than willing to go against you know, the weight of tradition if scripture demands it. Number two, I, I do think the Pope has too much vested authority. I mean, I think uh, in a sense, I want to say, obviously, like hopefully no Catholic person listening to this would be offended at that. I mean, that the fact that I am Protestant means almost by definition that I don't, uh, you know, agree with or re- really resonate with the the level of authority that one individual has. Um I, I do. Th- I mean, I just on a broader level, I think hierarchies can be very dangerous, and I do think the New Testament pushes back hard against hierarchies and people in positions of authority. Um, and now, not that we shouldn't have authorities or people in authority, or you know, I don't. Obviously, I think pastors and leaders carry a level of authority, but I think the Catholic Church um, would. I think have too much invested authority into one man and, you know, other people who are under him. I don't know. What's the next level? I don't even know. Is it cardinals or bishops or vice versa? Um, so uh, number three, the big one for me is the priesthood of all believers. That's a huge one. I, I gosh, I just, I do see that <laughs> clearly in scripture. I know we, I hesitate using the word clearly. I get in trouble by saying that because it's like, well, it's clear to you, but not clear to everybody. Well, okay. I get it. But I, I can, can I say that the priesthood of all believers is clear in scripture? I mean, that just, I, it, that the idea that a, a human priest needs to be some, on some level, a mediator between me and me and God. Um, I just, I, I disagree with that for, for several reasons. And I hope I'm not misrepresenting that. Maybe some Catholic listeners are like, well, that's how you Protestants understand our, you know, are the authority of the priest and the media, the, the, the role of the priest, but that's not how we see it. So if I'm, I need to be correct into that, please let me know. So what's my response to your friend who is uh, has left the non-denominational church for the Catholic church? I, I, honestly, I would want to know why. I, like genuinely want to know why. Like come, you know, go to the person and say, man, I, I'm really curious. Why did you leave the Protestant church or the evangelical church with the Catholic church? And not in, a, in an interrogative way, or, but in a genuinely inquisitive way. Like as in you're the learner, he's the teacher. Like, like teach me why uh, you find the Catholic church more true and compelling than the evangelical church. That'd be my, my first approach. I, I'd want to see too, are the other reasons legitimate, you know, and if they are, then I would say, yes, you know, God bless you. I hope it's great to use your own words that, you know, you said in your question, if the reasons were lame, then I might humbly push back and, you know, on some of those reasons, uh, there's a very good chance when people leave the evangelical church to join the Catholic church, they probably had some bad experience in the non-denominational church. Maybe it's the goofiness, the fluffiness, the anti-intellectualism, the lack of rootedness, uh, church splits every, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever, whatever it is. Like, I think it may be being just simply, at least in part, worn out from the subculture of evangelicalism. Okay. Next question. What are my thoughts on Pope Francis's new view of hell? (laughs) Now this is a little, I'm a little bit behind on this. As you may know, uh, the Pope said some things about, um, well, he, he said some, he said some things about hell that seemed to imply that he denies the existence of hell. Others took him to say that he believes in an annihilation view of hell and uh, it kind of blew up uh, just before Easter. And here it is, you know, the uh, middle of April, uh, even towards the end of April. And I am now addressing this. So it may be old news to some of you, but let me give you some thoughts. I did do a bit of research looking at several 
news articles and websites and looking at how the Catholic church has responded, looking at the actual words of um, uh, Pope Francis, what he allegedly had said. So here's what he had. Well, let me say this. Here is what Pope Francis allegedly said. He says this regarding those who don't know Christ, the wicked or whatever. Um, He says, they are not punished. Those who repent, obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks of those who contemplate him. But those who do not repent and cannot be forgiven disappear. Then he says, a hell does not exist or doesn't exist. The disappearance of sinning souls exists, which, and, and that's it. That's, I don't have any more text, um, from that, maybe there's a bit more context. I didn't see any more context than that. Now, the Catholic Church's position is this. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. By the way, I, I think they actually got it wrong, the Catholic Church there. I think that's absolutely wrong, not just because I... Um, well, you know what? Just just to be clear, it doesn't it, that statement alone that I just read, uh, which is the official Catholic Church's position, doesn't in and of itself uh, adhere to eternal conscious torment. The phrase "eternal fire" doesn't demand eternal conscious torment, as I've said a few times on this podcast. Um, but the one main reason why I disagree with this is because it says immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell. The, I, Biblically, I would say that in after after immediately after death, the soul of the unrighteous goes to a place called Hades. Maybe there's torment there. If we take Luke 16 uh, quite literally, uh, maybe not. Uh, either way, that's not hell. Hell is a place that where unbelievers go after judgment, after they are resurrected from the dead, given new bodies, face judgment, and then are cast into hell. So. Um, it's not, it's, it's explicitly not immediately after death. And it's more than just the souls of those who die, who go to hell. So I think the Catholic church's position for several reasons, in as much as this statement that I found online on the Catholic website accurately represents the church's position. I think it's, it's off for several reasons. Now, according to the national Catholic register, this is what they said in re, in response to uh, the Pope's words. Here's, here's what they say. What is reported by the author in today's article is the result of his reconstruction in which the literal words pronounced by the Pope are not quoted. No quotation of the aforementioned article must therefore be considered as a faithful transcription of the words of the Holy Father. So it seems that uh, Eugenio Scalfari, the reporter, who's like 118 years old or something like that, he's not that quite that old, but he's a really old reporter, um, does, doesn't take notes or use a recording during his interview. I read that somewhere that this is, he characteristically just kind of absorbs the, the, the person being interviewed. So the biggest question I have is whether he literally or he accurate, uh, accurately represented the literal words of the Pope. And this is what the Catholic, the National Catholic Register is getting at. They said, look, this is his summary or gist of what the Pope said. And this reporter is an atheist. Uh, apparently, he's been known to not act, represent the Catholic Church most accurately. So there is a massive question mark over people's my, minds and, and over my mind, too, uh, of whether this reporter is uh, representing what the Pope actually said. In spe- you know, specifically, the, the phrase a hell doesn't exist. Like that's the one phrase that really leaps out at me. Um, Though the the idea of of 
you know, those who aren't forgiven that will disappear, that would convey some sense of annihilation, okay? But that's not denying hell. Again, just to clarify, the annihilation view of hell is not denying hell. It's a, it's a different, I would say, more biblical understanding of what hell is. Uh, it's not saying hell doesn't exist. So it's really that one phrase, a hell doesn't exist, uh, that uh, we're left up to this reporter who with no recording, no actual notes to, you know, uh, is, is, he rep- is he accurately representing the, co- the Pope's, Pope's literal words? Um, it, it's, it's, I think the jury's a bit out. So, but here is where, I guess my, the one fishy thing to me is if he did misrepresent what the Pope actually said, how come we haven't seen, to the best of my knowledge, we haven't seen the Pope come right out and say, oh, I just want to clarify this. I totally believe in hell. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment where the wicked will be thrown. Like he hasn't come out and really reaffirmed as far as I know, a real clear articulation of, of the nature of hell. Um, so that, you know, and given that the Pope's, you know, somewhat progressive uh, leanings and in, in several areas, uh, you know, wouldn't surprise me that deep down he doesn't actually believe in an ECT view of hell or maybe even hell as a whole. But again, that's just, you know, um, that, that's, that's just an assumption on my part. I'm not saying that's true. Uh, but I, I would, it is, a li- I'm a little curious why he hasn't come right out. And if he completely believes in eternal conscious torment and hell, then how come he has not come right out and affirmed that? What makes the Bible uniquely inspired? This questioner says, you refer back to scripture a lot on your podcast. I'd like to ask, how do you know that the Bible in its 66 part form as used by the Protestant church is God's word? What makes scripture uniquely inspired in ways that other sources are not? Okay. So, um, so let me give you several reasons and uh, well, let me give you four main reasons. And let me say none of my reasons are scientifically like bulletproof. In other words, I can't prove to you that the Bible is uniquely inspired in the same way that I can prove to you that I ride a 2001 Harley Sportster 1200, which I do, but it's been super cold here. So, and I, my ankle still, I don't know if you guys know, but I, I tore almost every ligament in my foot. And so I'm, I'm, that was, January 6th when I was still in Australia and I was on crutches for two months and then a boot for another month. And I've just been walking for the last few weeks. So I've not been on my Harley 2001 sports but I do own one and, and that I can show, I can show you pictures. I can touch it. I can fly you out here or you can fly yourself out here. And uh, you know, you can see that I own, I can show you the registration. I can prove to you beyond any shadow of legitimate doubt that this is a true statement. I can, um, I can show you that, uh, I'm 42 years old by my birth certificate. Maybe there's a chance that my parents messed up. They lied about it. And, you know, so, so there it's, it's not, you know, there's a slight chance that, um, you know, my, my evidence, the evidence that I give you that I'm 42 years old might still, you might still have some loopholes and like, well, it's still not hundred percent true, but either way you would be more secure in those statements than when I say the Bible is inspired. Um, now to be clear, I, I don't, the word inspired, when we say the Bible is inspired, that doesn't mean it's inspiring. Like Harry Potter might be inspiring. Um, it, it's inspired in the sense that 2 Timothy 3.16 says it's inspired. In other words, that it's theopneustos or God breathed, that it is the breath or words of God. Now inspired, the idea of the Bible being inspired also doesn't mean that it is a, it must be interpreted literally. Some people say, I believe in the inspiration of God's word. Therefore creation is, you know, God created the world in six days. It's like, well, those are two different statements. One is a hermeneutical statement, namely that the, 
that Genesis 1 uh, speaks of a literal six-day creation, and the other statement that the Bible is inspired is a different claim. Uh, the, the two don't go hand in hand, but I, I want to make that point because some people, if you say that you're, you believe in the inspiration, inspiration of scripture, they, they interpret that to mean, oh, so you take the Bible in a woodenly literal sense, you know, that everything's historical in the same way. And it's like, well, no, those are two different uh, claims, inspiration and, you know, uh, a literal interpretation. Inspiration also doesn't demand inerrancy. Karl Barth, the great German theologian of the 20th century, 21st century, no, 20th century, um, he uh, believed in inspiration, he believed in the authority of scripture. He did not believe in inerrancy. Those are, those are different claims. One does not demand the other. So, so just to be clear, like if, if the fact, you know, when I defend the inspiration of scripture, I'm not necessarily defending uh, how to interpret it or whether there are any sort of historical or scientific errors in the word of God. So let me give you four reasons why I believe in inspiration. The first two are, uh, if you're an atheist or a skeptic, you're going to roll your eyes at these, but I'm just being really honest with, um, with my, uh, with my beliefs. I'm just being, I'm being honest with what has been the foundation of my belief, whether I know it or not. Okay. Number one, it says the Bible says it's inspired. Yes. I know that's circular. Yes. I know that, uh, that wouldn't hold up in a court of law, but part of me, yes, it is circular. And I think everybody, religious people and non-religious people, uh, do have some level of circular reasoning for all sorts of beliefs. Okay. So it says it's inspired. First Timothy three sixteen or Second Timothy three sixteen already read, and um, uh, the book of Hebrews um, quotes some passages from the Old Testament and says, you know, as the Holy Spirit says, implying that the biblical author was somehow moved by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy chapter one talks about uh, biblical writers being moved by the Holy Spirit. So it says it's inspired. Number two, the Christian church accepts this truth claim. It's a, not just accepts it, but it's a crucial aspect of the Christian faith. To be a Christian is on some level to acknowledge, let's just say the authority of scripture derived from the fact that it's inspired by God. Doesn't mean it's not also written by man or, you know, it's the word of God, but it, you know, but it also comes through the pen or words of uh, uh, humans. But ultimately, uh, I mean, this is a, a huge aspect of the Christian faith. If I was going to convert to Judaism, part of that would be in, in receiving the Jewish belief that, um, at least the Orthodox Jewish belief that, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible is also inspired by God. It comes from God. Or if I was going to convert to Islam, I would, that by definition, I would be signing off on certain views of the Quran, their holy book. And so each religion, most religions have holy uh, pieces of literature that are recognized as holy, set apart, different of God, authoritative or inspired. And so just the fact that I am a Christian um, means that uh, I, unless I find really, really good reasons otherwise, uh, I am going to also embrace a major tenet of the Christian faith, namely the inspiration of scripture. Okay, so those first two reasons might be considered lame if you're a skeptic. So let me give you two more reasons that might be a little more compelling. Number three, though written by men with positions of power and privilege, the biblical worldview elevates and praises those who don't have power and privilege. This is what would be called an internal uh, cri criterion for inspiration, that it doesn't seem like it is purely a human book, if all these humans who are writing the Bible, 
over 40 authors, I think, um, who are in positions of power and privilege, most of them anyway. We know this for one, because they're all men. Number two, uh, they can all write. I mean, by definition, they wrote the scriptures, they can write. And so being a man who is literate in the ancient world uh, gives you a tremendous amount of power and privilege. And then there's other, you know, Paul is a, a citizen, of Rome that gives them another, you know, leg up on everybody. Um, Old Testament writers were typically prophets and they were held in high esteem than everybody else. I mean, it it just doesn't make sense if this is simply a human book um, that people in positions of power and privilege would build into their narrative from Genesis to revelation and elevation of people who do not have power and privilege that, I mean, it's just, it's astounding. It's, it's fascinating from a purely historical perspective and even a, a, a religious perspective that their holy book would elevate, you know, women, that it would elevate the poor, that it would elevate people, you know, children. Um, and especially, you know, you can compound that. So foreign women who are going against the moral system of the people writing the book, the books like Rahab or uh, even Ruth or others, uh, Esther. I mean, it's fascinating that um, that the heroes of the Bible are usually people of very low social status and pr- status and privilege. That at least indicates, not without a shadow of doubt, but it points towards some other author working through these human writers, or the biblical writers just all happen to be just have an amazing altruistic view of other humans, which is just very unlikely. Uh, number four, fourth reason is that the biblical worldview makes the most sense of my lived experience in the world. I mean, I could rattle off all kinds of things here, but I mean, people are a blend of good and evil, like the Bible says. Um, Even good people do really bad things. We see this in society. We see it in the scriptures. Uh, Salvation by grace, not by human effort, makes more sense to me. It makes more sense of my own pursuit of the divine. If it were up to me, and that is how salvation happens, then that uh, it just experientially doesn't feel very compelling. Uh, The Bible has a very high view of creation, a high view of women, um, the centrality of Jesus Christ. Jesus is one of the most compelling religious uh, figures in religious history. Um, Even in in the eyes of people like Gandhi and and other uh, leaders who don't even confess the Christian faith, uh, the fact that the Christian church and Christian history, Christian denominations have have not represented Jesus in all of his countercultural expression. That's our fault, not Jesus's fault. But if you just read the life and words and teaching and story of Jesus, at the, the fact that the Bible puts that story, that person, that teaching at the center of its message is incredibly compelling. Uh, I can read other pieces of religious literature and it just doesn't have as compelling of a central figure as the Bible does. So those are the four main reasons. This, the last two, I think, are the, I guess, the main, main reasons. Notice that I did not cite biblical prophecy. This was what I grew up with, and a lot of Christians still do this. Maybe a lot of you do this, and I don't want to pass judgment, but I would like to provoke your thoughts a little bit. Um, I, it's not to argue against somebody who doesn't already believe in the Bible, if to argue from biblical prophecy is not going to get you anywhere for a few reasons. Um, <laughs> number one, well, let me, let me give you one main reason. For biblical prophecy to work largely depends upon 
the dating of when these individual books were written. So for instance, Isaiah in Isaiah 45 predicts the coming, the rise of a Persian leader named Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus even existed. So people say, see, that's prophecy that shows that it's true and inspired. It's not just Isaiah saying that because Isaiah lived, you know, at the, you know, uh, he probably penned that around 700 BC. Cyrus didn't come on the scene until 150 years later in the mid 500s BC. But here's the thing. We don't know. We, we can't, we assume Isaiah lived there in that time, which is probably true. We have archaeological evidence and we assume that he's the one that wrote that, but we don't have hard evidence that some editor didn't come in and, and add that after the fact in say the year 500 BC. You say, well, we got the Dead Sea Scrolls that has that statement. Well, maybe, but those are still hundreds of years after Cyrus. They could have edited that in or somebody else could have edited, edited that in. Uh, it could have been written after the fact. Um, even uh, Daniel 11 is one of the most detailed prophecies about the intertestamental period, stuff going on in the second century BC. And Daniel obviously lived in, well, not obviously, if you, sorry, I don't want to be condescending, but okay. Daniel lived uh, during the 600s, uh, no, sorry, during the 500s BC, 6th century BC. But a lot of scholars say that Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel. They say it was actually written in the second century for various reasons. And so, and we can go on and on and on. There's a prophecy in Daniel, um, gosh, is it Daniel 7 about the 70 weeks? And people say that Daniel predicted the very, you know, day that Jesus would ride in on the donkey. That is highly disputed. And the dating on all of that is very debated. Um, And we can go on and on and on in almost every single prophecy you can find. If If you play the skeptic card and you don't assume a, a, a precise date of when these books were written, um, you can really tear to shreds that argument. And we don't have hard and fast evidence of authorship. We assume that when when Daniel says, I, Daniel, you know, wrote this book, I don't think he quite said that. We just assume because it's true that he wrote the book. And we also believe Daniel lived in the sixth century. And so we, we but we take a lot of for granted there because we already believe that the Bible's true. But for a skeptic to say, wait a minute, show me the evidence that Daniel actually wrote this 500 years before these prophecies came true. Show me hard evidence, scientific evidence that Isaiah actually predicted this 150 years before Cyrus. If you, if you really push it, you cannot uh, prove that. The only thing, the only times that prophecies, you know, you, you could maybe make an argument from prophecy is when Old Testament, the Old Testament gives prophecies that didn't come true until the New Testament. But even there, there's not, even there, you could say that the, the New Testament biblical writers fabricated certain events to match Old Testament prophecy. So for instance, Zechariah, gosh, what is it? I think it's 12, Zechariah 12 uh, talks about, you know, the Messiah riding on a donkey, yea, verily the colt, the foal of a donkey or something like that. And, you know, it's, you know, it's a prophecy about the triumphal entry when Jesus rides in on a donkey. Well, maybe, but, or if you play the skeptic, you could say, well, wait a minute, the biblical writers just made that up. The New Testament writers made that up to make it look like it was a prophecy in, you know, in Isaiah's time. And plus it's a, you know, it could be coincidence, like okay, Isaiah prophesies he's going to ride in a donkey, and then, um, and then, yeah, Jesus happens to ride in a donkey. Or let's just say the biblical, the New Testament writers did accurately represent what actually happened. Maybe it was Jesus who said, "Oh yeah, there's this 
prophecy back there. So I have to kind of fulfill this prophecy and then he made it happen. But maybe the, the, the actual prophet or Zechariah, you know, he wasn't actually predicting the future. He was just kind of making a statement and, and Jesus comes along and tries to uh, fit in his mission or his, you know, events with that statement. So, I mean, again, if you play the skeptic card, you can come up for all kinds of other reasons why, um, these prophecies match up even between the old and new Testament. So I, I, I don't, uh, I actually don't like to base my view of inspiration on prophecy. So yeah, it's the other four reasons I gave. I think those, especially the last two, I think are more compelling. Should someone identify as a gay Christian? Um, I'm going to, uh, let me read a little bit of this question here. Just give you a little context. He says, uh, so I've been diving into the study of homosexuality for the past uh, year and a half, reading books, searching the scriptures and listening to all of your podcasts. It has been invaluable and in coming from an all, oh, I, 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 <laughs> it has been invaluable and in coming from an alt-right conservative Christian homosexuals on our, are an abomination background. I've grown <laughs> so much in grace. Well, the bar set pretty low, I guess, but uh, yeah, well done by moving away from the alt-right Christian sort of uh, perspective here. Um, yeah, so uh, why do Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction often label themselves as gay Christians? I ask because I might struggle with lustful thoughts, but I don't call myself a lustful Christian or a sexually immoral Christian. Okay, so it all depends on what you mean by the term gay. The term gay can mean, or well, the term gay simply means you're attracted to the same sex and not to the opposite sex. That's it. It doesn't say anything about your sex life. It doesn't say anything about whether or not you're lusting or not. It doesn't even say what, whether, what you believe about same-sex marriage or same-sex sexual relationships. Being gay simply means you experience an attraction to the same sex, not to the opposite sex. Now, some people, mostly straight people, when they hear the word gay, they automatically assume lust. They automatically assume uh, sexual behavior, but that is not demanded by the term gay. Now, I don't think that same-sex attraction, or if I can say simply being gay, is a morally culpable sin. Uh, other people who hold the same view I do include, if you know these names, Wesley Hill or Nate Collins or Greg Coles, or um, if you want to Google spiritual friendship, the, all the people on the spiritual friendship blog would agree with me. They, they are, you know, uh, people who do experience an attraction to the same sex. Many of them actually identify as gay, but they also hold to and are pursuing and submitting to a historically Christian view of sexual expression and marriage, namely that marriage is between a that that marriage is a union between two sexually different persons. That's what marriage is, and all sexual expression uh, is intended by God to be belong within that covenant union of marriage, being defined by the joining of two sexually different persons. So. Um, there's a lot of gay people who believe that, who are pursuing that, who submit to that, who yet still, still experience same-sex attraction. So since I don't believe same-sex attraction is itself a morally culpable sin, therefore the analogy of, you know, you say, I don't say, call myself a lustful Christian. Well, I don't think gay means lust. When people identify as a gay Christian, they don't, they're not saying I'm a lustful Christian, or they're not even saying, they're not even identifying as something that's intrinsically sinful like being gay or, you know, I, you know, a, a sexual, you say you, you don't identify as a sexually immoral Christian. Well, again, that's not what the term gay means for them. That's not how they're using the term. So 
Um, the biggest question is, what do you mean by the term gay? Let me, and again, there's, you know, some, the, the term gay simply means attraction, attraction, being attracted to the same sex. Um, it can be used as an identity label. Um, neither of those two things, gay as an identity or gay as same-sex attraction, is a, a morally culpable sin, I don't believe. Now, uh, gay could also be used to refer to sexual lust. I don't think it has to. I don't think that's not what the term means. Um, so if somebody who's straight assumes that gay means that, and I can understand the frustration at the label gay Christian, but again, that's not what the term gay means. Um, last question. Have I ever experienced a miracle? Uh, the question, or I could just read this. It's another two sentences. Uh, have you ever experienced miracles in your life? What one to three instances immediately come to mind? Now, uh, as you can probably guess, if you're a listener to the show, I'm going to respond to this question with a question. <laughs> what do you mean by a miracle? I will say, I think the term miracle is thrown around way too haphazardly. What one person means by a miracle, um, another person may disagree with that definition. So we need to get on the same page of what exactly we mean by miracle. So for instance, I have four kids. And do you believe that childbirth is a miracle? Um, uh, in one sense, I guess, you, I mean, it depends. I, I wouldn't call it a miracle. I would call it an act of God, a precious gift, but there are scientific and natural explanations for why I have four kids. Uh, my wife and I had sex at least four times and uh, sperm, seminate. <laughs> I'm getting too personal here. <laughs> if you don't know how it works, you can Google it, but be careful on what you pull up. Okay. So um, there, there, it's, it's, a, it's a miracle in the sense that it's, yeah, it's overseen by God and, and children are a gift from God, but it's not a miracle in the sense that it defies the laws of nature. Um, I'm a Christian. I got saved. Some people will say salvation is the greatest miracle of all. And if that's your definition of miracle, then that's your definition of miracle. I, I, I would say, um, no, I, I don't think the fact that I am a confessing Christian, that that is my religious commitment, is uh, defies the laws of nature. There's all kinds of sociological and psychological reasons for, for why humans would adhere to certain a certain religion and not another. So when I when so I when I say miracle, I'm referring to something that defies the laws of nature in a way that there is absolutely no natural explanation. And the term, I use the term absolutely not for emphasis, but in its literal sense that there is absolutely no natural explanation. So for instance, if somebody gets healed of cancer, I don't, I personally, I don't want to, I hope I don't offend anybody. Um, I'm happy saying that's an act of God. I'm saying, I'm happy to say that's a result of prayer. I still don't love saying miracle. Um, maybe the doctor misread the, uh, the report. Uh, maybe it went away. Um, that that is not scientifically impossible for cancer to go away, even overnight. Like th that doesn't defy the laws of nature. Um, a, mi a miracle would be uh, somebody missing a limb to grow a limb. I would say, you know, somebody was, for instance, with a Down syndrome or something, to um, uh, not have that anymore. Like that that defies. As far as I know, I'm not a scientist, but I think that that would defy the laws of nature. The parting of the Red Sea on dry land, that defies the laws of nature. So, um, 
uh, being healed from blindness, or I think even deafness. I think this would defy the laws of nature. Like the science, there is n- no, not just rare, but a, an actual um, scientific explanation for this. I don't think. Oh, maybe your ears are clogged with uh, earwax for thirty years. I, I don't know. I mean, may, maybe there are maybe there are exceptions to that. But I, I want a, a miracle. I, I I think miracles are evidence when the God puts his finger in the pool of human history and sends ripple effects. I think it's intended to point to God's activity in God's direct activity in, in, in history. So having said all that, no, I've never experienced a miracle. My kid, I've prayed and my kids have been healed of a sickness. I don't consider that a miracle. Um, I, I've, um, uh, I've gotten a job and, uh, I don't consider that a miracle. Um, my wife said yes when I asked her to marry me. So maybe that's a miracle, but, um, I, I've heard a lot of, uh, secondhand test, a lot of secondhand testimonies of, um, gosh, I've heard probably thousands of secondhand testimonies of legs being lengthened. Okay. Um, even secondhand testimonies of, you know, people being healed of blindness or a, a fatal disease or, or, you know, whatever. Um, I have never had that experience on myself and I have sought them. In fact, it was, um, last time I saw it, it was probably six months ago. There was somebody at a church I was at who, uh, uh was healing people and I'm actually deaf in my left ear. So I went forward to be healed of my hearing in my left ear, my deaf ear, which is my left ear. And it didn't, I wasn't healed. Uh, so I have sought it out. Uh, I have prayed. I'm not, not so much recently, but I have prayed that God would heal me of, of a hearing in my, my deaf ear. Um, and that, that hasn't happened. And so, yeah, so personally on, on me, I haven't had anything happen to me that I would classify as a miracle. And I haven't seen anything that defies the laws of nature in the, in the strict sense that I've described above. I have heard of a lot of secondhand testimonies. Um, I don't need, let me just expand on this. He didn't actually ask about this. I don't need miracles to believe and be confident that God exists. Uh, there's only a few periods in biblical history where God actually does miracles. I mean, the whole post-exilic period for hundreds of years, we have no evidence that God did any sort of miracles. He was sort of working behind the scenes. He was working in and through human circumstances uh, to achieve his will and to work in and through the hearts of human people. Um, I don't consider those miracles. I do believe it's God working. Okay, so I do think God is working, um, just not in a miraculous, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, I don't need miracles to be happening to believe that God is working. Um, so I don't, I mean, God can do miracles. I actually, I mean, I, I don't doubt, let me say this. I don't doubt uh, 100% <laughs> that the secondhand testimonies I hear of miracles, um, neither do I 100% say that's of God, 100%, no way. There's no other explanation, must have been God. Well, there are other explanations. I mean, the human mind is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And the more we study neurology, the more we see how our mind is capable of creating realities and, uh, and we believe them, creating whole memories to cover up, for instance, trauma in the past. We have me- people, maybe you don't, but I mean, people have whole memories, narrative stories um, in their mind of their life that didn't exist <laughs> <laughs> that's just a proven fact. So um, that's very much a possibility that uh, from secondhand reports, reports, you know, it's another possibility that a miracle happened. I'm not doubting that. I'm, I'm not saying that that's didn't happen. 
I'm saying maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Um, praise God if it did, praise God if it didn't. God still exists if it did. God still exists if he didn't. God is moving if it did. God is moving if uh, it didn't happen. Did I get all that right? Um, so I don't, uh, I, I don't 100% doubt the miracles happen today. In fact, I would be inclined to say, I think they do happen today. Um, maybe not as frequent as people uh, have said that they happen. And again, a lot of it goes on, you know, depending on uh, what definition people have of, of miracle. Um, so yeah, I don't uh, feel like I'm missing out because a miracle hasn't happened. Um, I, I'd be amazed to see what happened. And I, I hope, I hope that would strengthen my faith. But again, uh, many people throughout scriptures that witness amazing miracles, they actually didn't, um, necessarily strengthen their faith. I mean, after walking through the parted seas on dry ground, they, within a few days, start grumbling and doubting God in the wilderness. Like that is crazy. After seeing Lazarus be raised from the dead, people still didn't want to follow Jesus. And um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, remember at the end of Luke 16, it says, even if, you know, at the, at the very end, you know, the rich man says, send Lazarus to tell my brothers, tell them that, you know, this place is real and they don't want to come here and they'll believe Lazarus because they know he died. And, and if he's raised from the dead, then uh, they'll believe him. And remember what uh, Jesus says, they have the scriptures. Well, I guess it was um, Abraham said in the story through, you know, Jesus told the parable. Um, they have the scriptures, let them read them. And the rich man's, I'm, hopefully I'm getting this, this is from memory. And the rich man says, you know, no, no, if somebody rises from the dead, they'll believe. And um, Abraham turns around and says, even if somebody rises from the dead, they will not believe. Like, I don't, I think miracles can enhance faith, but I don't think they need to. And I think true faith is a gift of God and comes from uh, also from you throwing yourself on God and committing yourself in allegiance to him. And uh, miracles can help that or you know, lack of miracles hopefully won't diminish that faith. Thanks for your questions. Thanks so much to my Patreon supporters for uh, voting on them. And thank you to all all y'all, all y'all for submitting them. If you have any questions, you can email them to chris at pressandsprinkle.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at pressandsprinkle.com. And thank you so much, you guys, for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show for as little as five bucks a month, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. And we will see you next time.